The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by Jeffrey Kay, a retired psychologist who has also worked with torture victims. He has been published in Truthout, Al Jazeera, The Guardian, Alternet, and is the author of the book Cover Up at Guantanamo, the NCIS investigation into the suicides of Mohammed Al-Hanashi and Abdul Rahman Al-Amri. We'll be talking about a brand new in-depth piece he has just published on Medium based on declassified documents making the case that the U.S. used germ warfare or biological warfare during the 1950-1953 Korean War. This history, I think, can have important implications for us today as we live through the coronavirus pandemic and new allegations of biological warfare between the U.S. and China. Thank you for being with us, Jeffrey. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very glad that you asked me on. Before I continue, I just wanted to do some quick podcast announcements. I don't frequently do this, but in order uh, to ensure the survival of geopolitics and empire, it's crucial for listeners to help us out a bit. Big tech censorship is accelerating. Uh, and some free ways you can help us uh, include leaving a rating and review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts and other platforms such as CastBox and Stitcher. You can subscribe to our Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube and hit the like buttons. This helps because it increases uh, our reach. The more likes there are, the more it's shared. Subscribe to our free weekly email list. And it's also important to begin using alternative social media. Our current favorite is Telegram, where we have just opened a channel. And we're also on MeWe, Minds, Gab, VK, and Reddit. And it's also important, if you can, to financially support us by making a one-time PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum donation, or become a monthly supporter via Patreon or Subscribe Star. Now back to our guest. Before we get into this new article, which is fascinating, it's lengthy, it's well-documented, uh, I would like you, Jeffrey, if you could uh, bring us up to speed a bit on the general premise, because uh, which is that the U.S. denies that it used germ or biological warfare in the 1950s during the Korean War, and that it regards such allegations as communist propaganda and disinformation. If you could set the stage a bit for the audience and myself, because I'm also a bit new to this subject, uh, and what you have previously written on this before we get into the new article with the evidence that contradicts the, what the U.S. says. Well, right. Most of your listeners, and even myself, I was born in 1954. The controversy around the U.S. use of biological weapons, germ warfare, during the Korean War was, was a huge scandal, a huge controversy back in the early 1950s during the Korean War. There were some allegations in uh, 1951, in the first year of the war, that the U.S. was spreading smallpox to cover their retreat. You know, it helped, you know, a lot of people don't know much about the Korean War. Maybe I should start there. Korean Peninsula was uh, occupied by the Japanese for, I guess it had been, you know, 50 years or more and had been incorporated uh, into uh, Japan at one point. And the, uh, it was an onerous occupation. People fought against it. And uh, some of the strongest fighters were communist guerrillas backed by uh, the Soviet Union and China. Many uh, Koreans at the same time were backing the Chinese revolution that was happening. Uh, in that, you know, in uh, the late 1940s, and a, a lot of collaboration between the North, what today we think of as the North Koreans, and uh, the Chinese uh, occurred prior to the Korean War. After World War II ended, the Korean Peninsula was divided without any even discussion with uh, the Koreans, North or South, by the United States and the Soviet Union. It had been decided at Yalta to divide it approximately at the 38th parallel. The Soviet Union sent troops in to occupy the North, and the United States sent troops in to occupy the South and created a military government. The U.S. actually ruled 
South Korea by military government in 1946-47. Ultimately, the U.S. turned its governing power over to a puppet government that it had put in place in the South, viciously anti-communist. And in the North, of course, the Soviets had actually withdrawn their troops, and North Korea was had become part of the communist world, if you would say. It had been taken over by its native communist uh, party, though it was very popular and still popular in the South. I mean, they were known as the people who fought the Japanese when many other Koreans, uh, particularly in the South, were collaborating with them. So that, that, that's some of the backdrop. The other important backdrop to all of this, and in my article I even say, really, in a sense, this is where the whole scandal around biological warfare and the claims of disinformation begin, not really even in Korea, but in China during World War II, when Japan, which had occupied much of China in particular, and had turned uh, northeastern China, known as Manchuria, into a puppet state known as Manchukuo, the Chinese had developed, were developing biological warfare on, on a scale that no other country was doing in the 1930s. It was um, pushed by a, a doctor and military man by the name of Shiro Ishii, whose name some of you may have heard because he was a class A war criminal. Of course, he, he never came to any justice at all. Today, this is well documented, and even American historians in the American press and the American government admit that you know the Japanese ran a, a, a cruel and widespread biological weapons program that used human prisoners um, as, as guinea pigs and would dissect them alive so they could uh, study the progress of the disease. The story of the horrors of Unit 731, some of your listeners may be aware of. Um, I advise everyone look into it. It's an extremely important part of, of modern history, world history. And it's the backdrop to everything that's going on now, even on some level, stories about whether biological, to what extent biological warfare is, is being prepared or being undertaken even now, because this was the first large-scale use. And the United States government knew about this. They didn't have really great details, but they were, you know, they had their spies and intelligence sources. And when the war ended, they went and tracked down Shiro Ishii and his compatriots, and they offered to make a deal with them, that they would not try them as war criminals if the Japanese would turn over to the United States the, the data, and that included hundreds of slides of human tissue, um, over to the U.S. that they could use in their own burgeoning biological weapons program, which was being run out of Fort Detrick, Maryland. The Japanese bargained hard, but they got the deal. Nobody was ever prosecuted for the biological germ warfare campaigns that were run in China, which killed thousands of people. At the time, and this is getting to the point, the United States denied that it ever happened. The United States said it was all communist propaganda. And when in the uh, border town, near where China, kind of Koreans and Russia all come together, the city called Khabarovsk. And Khabarovsk was the scene of a uh, war crimes trial put on by the Soviet Union after the United States and those who were putting on other war crimes trials at the time, post-World War II, refused to, you know, to put these criminals on trial. So the Soviets did it themselves, partly for propaganda purposes. But these people uh, were put in prison for a number of years uh, who they tried. And there was a written, and there was a record made of what had occurred. But the United States claimed that it wasn't true. You know, diplomats claimed it wasn't true. Scientists claimed it wasn't true. And the, the activities of Unit 731 then were were forgotten, except by Cold War U.S. and British and Canadian scientists who did know what had occurred. And we'll flash forward. That was in 1949. 
only six months later or so, when the Korean War itself breaks out and North Korea does invade South Korea, although um, it's a much more nuanced story how the Korean War really began, but I'm not going to get into that for your listeners' sake. We'll just stick with what, what is the mainstream view. Anyway, the Korean War began. North Korea was very successful militarily, and they the invasion just smashed through the defenses of the uh, Republic of Korea, which had very little popular backing. But U.S. troops and uh, Republic of Korea troops were, could survive were backed into a little corner of Korea known as the uh, Pusan Peninsula, way down in the uh, southeastern corner of, the, of Korea. The United States organized a huge invasion at Incheon near the city of Seoul. It's the port for Seoul. Invaded and in a pincer movement was able to successfully, in a kind of a brilliant military uh, thrust by MacArthur and his troops, push the, the North Koreans back and actually, with the U.S. might of the U.S. Army, push them all the way up to the border, the Yalu River, which is the border between Korea, North Korea and China. At that point, the Chinese entered the war. Uh, hundreds of thousands of, of Chinese volunteer, uh, they were called the Chinese Volunteer Army, People's Army, invaded Korea. And uh, once again, the U.S. was swept off its heels, one of the, the, the biggest military defeats ever for the U.S. Army. Because at this point, the U.S., we're talking November 1950, the U.S. was in Korea in a big way at that point. The U.S. Uh, was thrown back in the south past the 38th parallel, and then the struggle ensued for months, massive U.S. bombings in Napalm. If we can believe the stories, also biological warfare. The idea was that, in, in according to stories told by captured pilots who had been engaged in germ warfare, captured U.S. U.S. United States Air Force pilots, in one case Marine, or a couple cases Marine Corps pilots, the U.S. was using biological warfare to confuse and terrorize and demoralize the army, the North Korean and Chinese armies, and the civilian population, so they wouldn't support the war because uh, they felt they were back, uh, you know, they, they weren't winning the war, they were losing. So that was goes back to the idea that they were spreading smallpox and some other diseases, and they were, you, you know, poisoning wells, rivers. These were techniques, by the way, that Unit 731 had been involved with, and was, was some of their favorite techniques, you know, pouring arsenic into water supplies, etc. Since you mentioned the Unit 731, I mean, just to look at some patterns or tendencies that we you know we can bring up to the modern day where you mentioned how there are these deals you know we know about operation paperclip you know after world war ii how the u.s brought in nazi scientists uh their knowledge some actual scientists to work in the u.s uh soviets did the same as well and, and this is again the same instance where the u.s took the knowledge of japan's unit 731 and then to use for themselves to develop uh, into the future and you mentioned fort dietrich uh, and it's interesting that you mentioned that, I mean, 70 years ago, because Fort Detrick up until today is plays a crucial role in the 2001 anthrax attacks, where it's purported that you know the anthrax came from Detrick it, it itself, or even the, the theory or the scenario of the COVID-19 being a lab-made bioweapon, which again, Fort Detrick, it, I mean, if that's plausible or true, that w would be involved. So there's this trend line that goes all the way back uh, then and you know some of the stuff as well you mentioned in your new piece i was going to ask you you know what are some of the alleged bio warfare agents that stand out you mentioned like smallpox and tuberculosis as well as the different dissemination methods uh, as you were just discussing they, they were planting uh contaminated feathers using insects you said poisoning waterways 
Well, Fort Detrick, yes, was the center. There were other other areas, of course, that are involved and still are involved in the U.S. biological warfare campaign, which now some of those are labs that are, you know, uh, overseas, uh, in, uh, some of them in former uh, Soviet republics like Georgia. You know, at the time, Fort Detrick was in, is involved in helping create weapons of uh, mass destruction of biological warfare um, as early as uh, uh, 1942, 43, 44, certainly by 44, they had already um, engaged with the British in developing um, anthrax bombs. And in fact, at Fort Detrick created uh, or did a test run of 5,000 anthrax bombs. Um, anthrax is a, a hideous, if you remember from, I'm sure all your listeners, or most of them do, after 9-11 with the anthrax attack out of Fort Detrick. Well, Fort Detrick been messing around with anthrax since before the end of World War II. And a uh, production plant was set to go into mass-scale production in Vigo, Indiana, but the war ended. But the plan was to carpet bomb Germany with anthrax bombs. If the war hadn't ended the way it did, that very likely would have happened. The techniques they picked up from Unit 731 in particular, and that began in a big way to start happening, no matter what happened in 51, um, by the way, I, I don't believe that uh, tuberculosis was ever used as a uh, biological weapon. And I don't know why. Maybe it's too dangerous. You know, not every disease makes for a good weapon. Um, even those that they believe do make good weapons, it's not very easy to to start an epidemic. I know we're in the middle of a pandemic, but the reality is, you know, there's there's you know just millions of different organisms out there, and uh, they don't become pandemic. So it's not easy. So you want to manufacture such a thing. And I know Ishii and Unit 731, they certainly had their defeats where they, and one of them was in a big battle with the Soviet Union in 1939. Their intervention uh, didn't work very well. And to the degree it did, it backfired on the Japanese troops. Just biological weapons are, uh, on, on one hand, they would be cheap to produce. Um, they certainly are scary. Um, they can leave effects that last for generations. On the other hand, more than any other weapon, they can backfire on the very people who use it or be totally ineffective, even though you've invested billions of dollars. So it's a very complex subject. And every single instance of, of accusations surrounding biological warfare, your listeners, I want you, them to understand that you, know, you need to look at them in their, in their concrete situation, in the context, and not just expect that it could simply be matched one, one instance to another. Because we're talking here about biological organisms in a, in a, in a very uh, placed into a, a very complex ecological uh, matrix or environment, you know how that all works out is is, com is complicated. I had a, a question on the UN, as as you've been writing for years on the U.S. use of germ warfare, taking what they the Japanese first unit seven thirty one, and then the U.S. building upon that, and then the role of the United Nations, because you you mentioned a few times, you know, because it was the U.S. with the UN who went in. How do we then view? Because the UN is supposed to be viewed as this innocent, uh, neutral institution, but if then was the UN participating in this germ warfare? Well, how, how should we look at the UN's participation? Well, the, the germ warfare, so far as I know, was totally under American operational control. But where the UN comes into it, of course, is that the United States and Korea to, to give legit, you know, legitimacy to really what was an invasion of a sovereign nation. 
got went to the UN uh, where uh, um, got a pr- approval and then solicited the help and the UN was because you know, supposedly uh, North Korea was an aggressor nation or China was an aggressor nation to to give troops over you know to supply each nation to supply troops and there were a number of nations that did so uh, to fight along with the Americans in in Korea and so yeah the United Nations you know another complex entity because of course of course, at that time, China and North Korea were not part of the United Nations, nor were they allowed in. And in fact, when they wanted to come and speak to the United Nations General Assembly and, and bring their evidence about germ warfare, they were denied. Later, the United States wanted elements of the UN, like the WHO, the World Health Organization, which is a UN-based organization, to go in and investigate the germ warfare charges. And, and, and China and North Korea said no, and the you know, U.S. made a big propaganda deal. Oh, they don't want to have any investigations. Well, hey, you're, you're telling the people who are invading and carpet bombing your country with napalm uh, that they're going to be come in and uh, and, and dropping uh, you know germ weapons on you, that they're going to come in and, and be some kind of neutral entity to investigate the very thing that they're doing? It's insane. On one level, and, and maybe the most profound level of all, this my article and this whole story is all about the power of propaganda and the power of suppressing information and censorship. Because um, I look back, and, and uh, when I first started getting into blogging and writing and researching these kinds of things, which now is almost, uh, I'd say, goes back to about 2006 or so. You know, I'm a psychologist, and I you know put most of my energies into doing my job and learning how to do it and setting up a private practice business for myself. And uh, and in those days, what what drew me into politics was the fact that psychologists and the American Psychological Association, psychological and psychiatric establishments seemed to be implicated or at least not doing enough around uh, the issue of U.S. torture, which was happening after 9-11 and uh, the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq and the opening of Guantanamo. I have a history background before I became a psychologist. And so I I believe that you look at uh, documents, you try and get to original sources. You can't really always trust, you know, what what somebody else has to say who's just writing about it. I mean, it's important we hear them, but you have to really sift through a lot of information to get to what seems to be the truth. And back in 2006 or so, 2007, I look back at some of my writings, and I know that at that time, I believed, I'd never heard of Unit 731. It had never been taught in history. It was never discussed, or almost never discussed publicly. There had been a, a few articles back in the 19, mid-1980s. I must have missed it somehow when, when it was finally revealed in the West what had happened. And there was articles in the New York Times, et cetera. But then it just kind of, it, it, it never really made its way into popular discourse. There weren't movies about it. There weren't lots of books about it. You know, nor was there really any discussion about the U.S. cover-up of it and the agreement made with Ishii and the other Unit 731 personnel. None of that was discussed beyond the first revelations that occurred around it. I believed, yeah, that U.S. torture was designed as the mainstream media, including New York Times today, still say, you know, based on Chinese and North Korean torture techniques used to elicit false confessions by prisoners about germ warfare in Korea. And uh, that's the kind of technique, just like they were using torture to get false, you know, false confessions about Saddam Hussein's use of biological weapons so they could invade Iraq. It all made sense to me. It all seemed very simple, except I knew one thing because I was working with torture victims and I knew that the liberal story that torture always produces false confessions was itself wrong. Torture doesn't always produce false confessions. It can produce false confessions. It certainly does produce them at times. 
And if you don't know anything, certainly whatever you confess is false just on its basis. You're just saying something so that people stop torturing you. But if you have information and they torture you, guess what? Sometimes you give up those names or that information. So I knew the story was kind of hinky. And I, I said, well, you know, interested. Let me, I, very simple thing came to my mind. You know, I'd like to see what these confessions were that the flyers gave. Just how crazy were they? That will help me understand what really happened. Again, I still, I knew nothing about Unit 731. I knew nothing about these things. And then something extraordinary occurred. I, I couldn't find any copies or anything about the confessions. And I challenge your listeners to try to do the same thing. Although today it is online. I put a link in my article, but it's very, you know, poor, you know, finally in the past year or two, somebody posted something online um, doing PDFs, very poor PDFs, but readable of the confessions that were published in Chinese publications in English back, you know, in 1953. That's it. There's no books about what was written. There's no uh, dissection of what was written, debunking it. It's just, it just, you just accept it. It was bunk. It was crazy stuff. On the question then of, of sources, as, as you mentioned, on this general topic of, of the U.S. germ warfare in the 50s and the Korean War uh, with China, uh, I mean, are, are you one of the few people looking into this? Because I, I just did a quick search and I found one book published by Indiana University in 1998 uh, by Stephen Endicott and Edward oh, Hagerman yeah. called The U.S. and Biological Warfare, Secrets from the Early Cold mm -hmm. War in Korea. Uh, you, and you mentioned in your article a book that was published two months ago, I believe, by Nicholson Baker um, mm -hmm. called Baseless, My Search for Secrets in the Ruins of the Freedom of Information Act, where he also touches on documents declassified uh, talking about germ warfare in the 1950s. And so are, are, the, are there just a very few of these types of publications dealing with this germ yeah. warfare? Yeah, very few, which were published as a book in book form. In, in passing, in books about biological warfare, in essays, in, in book chapters and scholarly Cold War publications, you know, it would come up from time to time and immediately be dismissed. Yeah, the, the main book written on it is really the one you mentioned by Stephen Endicott and Edward Hagerman, two Canadian scholars of you know, the U.S. and biological warfare secrets from the Cold War. It's a great book. It's a scholarly book published by University Press, and it did make you know, a bit of an impact at the time. They made a, you know, These guys worked very diligently. They're great scholars. Sadly, both have passed away in the past few years. Very, very sad. But um, you know, they produced a really good circumstantial case um, by circumstantial, it means they didn't have a smoking gun piece of paper saying, we did it, signed the United States, <laughs> you know, or they didn't have an order, written orders, because the orders, you know, as the pilots who have been captured said, were actually passed orally or uh, destroyed. When you run a covert operation, you don't write down, you know, that's supposed to be uh, dismissible. You don't write down uh, generally the criminal things you're doing. Um you have to, you know, they have to be discerned by history in other ways. And there are other ways to, to do that by looking at, um, well, in this case, as I did in my article, and looking at, it's why I believe that this article has historical significance. And I, you know, I don't say that about anything else I've done. The reason I say that is because I believe it to be true. In this case, the CIA, uh, is around, beginning around 2010 or so, began declassifying a ton of documents a ton of files from the from the Korean War that were communication intercept based reports, daily reports that the CIA put out, receiving them from the Armed Forces Security Agency primarily, and which was a 
precursor to the NSA, National Security Agency. These reports, you know, they were using cryptological methods to break the code of the Chinese and the, and the Soviets and the uh, North Koreans so they could hear what they were saying for, you know, military purposes. Uh, you know, some unit sends a mess, you know, message to another unit that says we need, you know, our supplies didn't come through. Well, that would be important information to know if you were in the other army. But I think it, it makes sense. Everyone knows that you want to know what the other side's up to. You try and intercept their messages. And here I was online. I, um, I can't remember anymore how I stumbled across it, um, but I stumbled across this this thing, uh, this baptism by fire release. That's what the CIA called it. Release of, of military intercepts and the, the, the CIA interpretation of those intercepts contemporaneously from the Korean War. And in, as I began looking, I saw a number of them mentioned the biological warfare um, issue. And uh, what what they were reporting on was what the enemy, in this case, the Chinese and North Korean units, were, were saying about it. Now, when Endicott and Hagerman's book came out in 1998, there was another thing that came out in 1998. The timing of it is kind of suspicious. A Japanese right-wing journalist somehow was given access, supposedly, to some secret, previously secret documents in the Soviet archives. Now the Soviet Union was gone, but it were opened up, and this guy was able to look at 12 different documents, of which um, the bulk of them, not every one, but the bulk of them, um, told a story, supposedly, where these Soviet officials we're telling other Soviet officials that the charges of biological germ warfare, biological warfare were false, and that they, in fact, helped doctor and set up fake sites of biological warfare damage that they could then show to investigators who were coming from abroad to check this out. Um, the, the, the primary investigators being a group of uh, so-called democratic jurists with lawyers, kind of left-wing lawyers who came to Korea in uh, 1951 to check in early 51 to check out these uh, this and other crimes that the Koreans and the North Koreans and Chinese were alleging. And then later, 1952, um, an organization was the International Scientific Commission, headed by, at that time, probably the most famous British scientist of his day, uh, Joseph Needham, later became very famous for writing a massive history of, of, of technology and culture in China science and civilization in China, but in his day was known as a, as a brilliant biochemist who had worked for the British in China, so he knew Chinese, during World War II, helping kind of liaison the British government with Chinese scientists for war-related purposes uh, during, uh, against Japan during the um, uh, war. Well, one, one thing that happened as a result of that was that Joseph Needham knew all about Unit 731, or at least he knew about the biological warfare campaigns and how they were conducted and what was happening. So when he saw, and others who were in the know, saw what was happening in the Korean War, it was, it, as he himself wrote, it could not help but bring to mind what they had just seen a few years earlier happening, less than 10 years earlier, in the same general region of the world. And there had been reports of you know, how the U.S. was working with the uh, Japanese, and some of these reports today have certainly been verified, and I, I do talk about some of them in my article won't go over them now, but uh, if you, you know your, your listeners can read all about that. They they thought that they were definitively proved. The Cold War scholars who put this out were primarily Milton Leitenberg and Catherine Weathersby, two two scholars associated uh, with the Wilson Center, Cold War agency that was putting out you know mono, monographs um, on, on Cold War topics. And this came out 
and it certainly it certainly kind of puffed the tried to puncture the the balloon put out by um, Endicott and Hagerman, you know, which pretty it had convinced me that was the first book. That was the book that really turned me around. And uh, it's a, it's an incredible book, encyclopedic in knowledge. You know, the, their conclusions are 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 probabilistic, but they definitely pointed to the direction that the charges of germ warfare were true. And Endicott and Hagerman were given special access to Chinese archives to look, in fact, at the data from within China itself, as well as, you know, they were massive users of FOIA and had a, a lots of look at uh, documents in the United States. You've kind of brought us a bit up to speed and, and you've kind of made the case. And, and if we kind of accept that, that, you know, the U.S. Uh, applied germ warfare uh, in the 1950s, you know, and the Japanese did it before that. I just kind of wanted to do a little bit of a uh, mental exercise, you know, see what, what takeaway do we have for us today in 2020, especially surrounding the whole COVID-19 situation. And again, you know, I've, I've had on a plethora of people with different perspectives. And that's kind of the point uh, of this podcast where I don't necessarily accept um, a thesis or I will change my mind over time as listeners uh, as well with, with different. And I think it's important, though, to explore the different scenarios. And so if we just kind of compared the uh, allegations of the U.S. germ warfare, uh, one of the examples you gave was uh, I was reading your, your piece today and it was discussing man-made, I believe, smallpox being used in Korea uh, and China in the 1950s. And then we, uh, today there's this talk, you know, of man-made coronavirus. And so looking at your piece, there were reports of these smallpox epidemics in Korea breaking out from bacteria that was found to be of an artificial culture, or I suppose man-made mm -hmm. in a laboratory, and which was less vir virulent than the natural mm -hmm. variety. So again, if we, mm -hmm. if, we, if we take that from the 1950s and we think about the significance today, where they're discussing how COVID is a 19 is a patented or man-made laboratory construction of a less vir right. vir virulent variety. Um, right. And then as well, in your piece, there's documents that discuss uh, the allegation that the U.S. used Japan as an intermediary, intermediary in mass production of bacteria and that they were using uh, following the Japanese bacteriological techniques in the war against China. Again, if we take some of the ideas with the COVID case, it would be the U.S. using China itself as an intermediary um, or one of the U.S. biolabs, such as in Kazakhstan or Georgia or other places, from which they would launch against China, right, uh, a bioweapon. Um, as well as you mentioned in Korea that U.S. troops brought smallpox during their temporary occupation to Korea. And again, we have the allegations from last year that 300 U.S. troops who attended the military games in Wuhan in October uh, of 2019 may have introduced COVID-19 uh, there. So again, I just it's just an interesting mental exercise. And I, I see there are a lot of like parallels. So for you, what might be some takeaways for us today or how would it relate to the allegations of biowarfare today with COVID-19? You know, one, one thing that's, I, 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 I'm not a university expert on biological weapons or biological uh, contagion. I'm a psychologist, but I do know how to look at evidence and I do see patterns. And I know a lot of people believe that, um, depending on their political background, that either the United States or the China I have by uh, somehow uh, with the, the coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, uh, engaged in biological warfare. 
and that these can be traced back to Wuhan, China, or to the, 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 the war games that were happening, not war games, but the sports games that were happening that the U.S. military were involved in. You know, the United States definitely, and in other countries as well, have definitely been in, involved in ongoing research into biological weapons. They claim they do it for defensive purposes. Um, they claim they do it so they can better develop vaccines. Um, but they uh, are creating more and more virulent forms of disease. Again, they claim they're doing that so they can, uh, they can produce uh, good vaccines. But, you know, it's all done under a sheath of tremendous secrecy. Um, again, it's in, you know, in the hands of people who you can't trust. You can't trust what they say. And one of the takeaways from my, you know, is if they're still covering up crimes uh, from, from 70 years ago, well, what are they covering up now? But having said that, at least in the case of this COVID virus, you know, it doesn't appear to me to have been a weapon. Now, was it an act due to an accidental release from a laboratory? Perhaps. I, again, I don't feel strongly about that one way or the other. I'd, I'd have to look at it carefully, you know, and I, I kind of will for the moment bow to my, you know, to, to the, the Chinese scientists who, who, who swear up and down that that's not the case. And, you know, people go, well, of course they'll do that. But uh, a lot of people believe you know, what I do, you know, what the conspiracy theory that this was a, a weapon doesn't take into account is how biological weapons are really used. And if you look at the history of Unit 731 and you look at the history of how the germ warfare campaigns were conducted in uh, Korea, and then we, I'm probably going to run out of time. We hardly got time to get to the primary campaign, which was one of using insect vectors and to some degree uh, sprays um, from airplanes but the dropping of animals who infected and insects infected, which is a specialty of you know, Unit 731, to spread, uh, uh, to introduce what they call disease vectors into areas, you know, like dropping a bunch of fleas who are infected with plague into an area to, you know, to use the insects as the spreaders of disease, just as they are in nature, but, but to make the diseases more virulent and, of course, jam-pack the amount of insects where previously you're walking through a forest and maybe one tick with, uh, uh, you know, Lyme disease bites you um, versus what if we dropped, you know, 3,000 ticks in your neighborhood now, you know, to inundate it and flood it and cause uh, um, epidemics. But what they did was, you know, they, you know, when biological weapons are weapons and weapons have to be targeted. And they, you know, what do you target a weapon for? Well, biological weapons are targeted, you know, at areas where uh, individuals gather, where they um, gather for things like water or food. They're targeted at logistics trails, uh, you know, supply trails for armies, right, or cities. You know, you, you have to be able to target a weapon to call it a weapon. So I cannot see that there was any target involved in how coronavirus uh, came about. And in fact, one of the aspects, sad, I think, sad to say about this whole, you know, I don't, I don't want to call it conspiracy theory, we'll just call it a theory that, you know, this was somehow a biological weapon that got out of control, is that it overlooks a very, very important, you know, scientific discovery of only about 15 years ago, which was that um, in, the, in the area near Wuhan, but some other areas, which uh, proving that uh, bats, in that part of China, were a repository of a tremendous number of different coronaviruses. They still don't know how many, you know, um, hundreds if not thousands. Scientists had been warning about it for years that these were going to break out in, in various ways because 
as human, you know, the spread of human uh, population enters other you know, areas of the uh, biosphere that have not been inhabited and don't have those kind of stresses put upon it. And as it does now, you know, uh, these reservoirs of, of viruses now have an outlet in, in, into hosts that it never had before. And that's, I believe, uh, the most simple explanation for what has occurred. Nobody knows to this date exactly how this virus began or where. So it's, I think it's really putting the cart before the horse to jump to something like a virus. However, it's totally understandable under the circumstances, I think, why people would be mistrustful and even wondering. I think it's a valid question to ask. I am willing to have my mind changed, just as my mind was changed, as I explained to your listeners before, about uh, what happened in Korea. You know, if other evidence comes to light, then obviously I would I would change my mind. But so far, that's where I am. But I do think uh, all of this, whether it's what I'm writing about the Korean War or it's about the biological uh, uh, labs that are around the world, including in China and in the United States, in Kazakhstan and Georgia, you know, that we need to, uh, a ton more transparency. And they really maybe should be shut down. They're, they're very dangerous. And, and humanity, not for the last time, is playing with really dangerous fire. Uh, and the people who handle these things are not people, in many cases, that one can trust. And so we need, as, as Baker argues in his book, Baseless, that you mentioned, um, we need, you know, we need records open. We need archives open. We need people to be transparent about what they're really doing so that we can really uh, uh, stop something nefarious that's happening or, you know, address, you know, the crimes that have already occurred rather than just turn other people into enemies. I, I, I'm motivating this because I believe the United States is, is looking uh, uh, to go to war with China and Russia or both. Well, that was my next and final question before giving you the last word. And I think this is important because, you know, regardless of whether it was a bioweapon or not, it seems that Washington is, we're starting to see it now in all of the, the social media, the mainstream media, that Washington is seeming to frame China in order to build the case for what effectively would be World War III with China, Russia, and its allies, perhaps yeah. Iran. And it's like uh, deja vu, you know, just as the propaganda buildup for war with Iraq was based on false claims of weapons of mass destruction, it seems like, again, the same playbook, but this time it's viruses of mass destruction. And so, you know, just final question, final thought, what, uh, on what's your take on this U.S.-China war scenario? Well, yeah, as you can see, I, this is what happens when people use uh, 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 claims of, about uh, weaponizing uh, biological organisms when they don't really have the evidence. You know, they just, you know, they make a lot of presumptions. So it's fine to surmise and have a theory, but in the world we live in, you know, who has the power to promote theories? Not you or me, really. We're, we're, we're trying to do so on a podcast, but the reality is it's the U.S. government, in the United States anyway, and, you know, has tremendous power over the population. And it's you, you know, and from Trump on down and the Democrats as well, you know, trying to frame this and demonize. This is what they always do before a war is to demonize the other, make you make the population afraid and, and prepare them that the thing to do is to go to war. But yes, it would mean World War Three. And I think uh, uh, your listeners, their families, everyone should be talking to other people and saying, we, we, we can't let this happen. We can't walk into the abyss with our eyes closed like this. And, and my essay is an attempt, one, one attempt to try and open our eyes to the truth of what's been happening so we can begin to go forward, not just talk about old historical events, but to go forward 
and and try and stop further cataclysms from happening. Is there any, I think that's a great uh, comment uh, that you leave us with. Is there any final thought beyond that for us? No, that's what really motivates me. You know, I, I will say if anyone approaches my article, I, I hope they're not too daunted. I mean, you should think of it as if you're reading a small book because, you know, it is, you know, I don't know, probably about 12, 13,000 words. And, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot to take in. Oh, and if there were one other thing, you know, I, I one thing I also did to try and open up history's eyes, at least in America or the West to this, is I, you know, made sure that we published or that I published online the report of the International Scientific Commission. That was one who went and, you know, it was talked about all the time. That was another suppression of history um, that you couldn't find. And I, I made it available. And uh, if you want to, if people want to see what a really good investigation looks at when, you know, when one is looking at allegations of biological warfare or germ warfare in an area, you can't do better than to look at the ISC report and see how they went about it. They described their, their methods, their methodology, um, problems with, with it. And, and it's, it's, it's an, any layman, I think, can understand what they're talking about. It's a fascinating work, and I highly recommend it. Uh, um, just type into your search engine, International Scientific Commission Report on Bacteriological Warfare, and maybe my name, and you will, uh, you will, you will get to uh, that document. I'll put a bunch of li links uh, of your material in the podcast description. And I was perusing that report uh, earlier today. I think it was also published on Insurge Intelligence, which is a good source. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'll, I'll include that link. Uh, so yeah, it's, that's where I posted it. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's good to have the original sources because you know, um, again, you you mentioned conspiracy theories, and it turns out like you know, uh, there are a lot of conspiracies, but they're not theories. You know, when you look at the actual you know source documents, a lot of the stuff is is, is there. The biggest conspiracy the world ever had is the United is the conspiracy of the United States government and its Cold Warrior scholarship backers that the that China and North Korea somehow managed to get hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses and doctors and and uh, 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 set up uh, uh, um, fake broadcasts that, that would somehow be picked up by. Um, American cryptologists working communications intelligence during the Korean War, all to make them think that there was a, a germ warfare happening. I mean, you'd have to be insane to believe. You'd have to have, you know, you were talking about a conspiracy involving thousands and thousands and thousands of people and uh, with great foreknowledge and all set up within a matter of a few months. Really extraordinary. That's the conspiracy theory. The kind of things we're talking about, the surmises, if you will, you know, unfortunately, yes, conspiracy theories is what's used to discredit uh, theories that that aren't in the mainstream that involve so-called conspiracies. Even though there, yes, there actually there are conspiracies in the world uh, all the time. The Holocaust was a conspiracy, right? On one very important level, and so yeah, so I try and steer clear of that word. I'd rather use the word surmise or just hypothesis or theory or whatever. Um, I know I brought it up, but. Um, it's hard not to because it gets bandied about. But that's my, that, you know, if your listeners take that away from this, I'd be happy. I think the listeners are wise enough and to realize that it's, we can't, we can't take, use that take the use of that term serious anymore because it is, as you said, it's just used to insult and discredit people. I've, I've interviewed uh, Florida professor emeritus Lance DeHaven Smith, who wrote the book where he analyzed the CIA dispatch, declassified dispatch, where supposedly the CIA basically popularized that term in mainstream media as a way to discredit 
I, as you said, anyone questioning the mainstream. So we can't really take that term seriously anymore. It's just used as an insult by people who I think are uh, ignorant. And so we'll, we'll leave it there. But what are the best places for people to find your work online? I know you have your Medium account as well as your Twitter is a great resource. Is there any other project or, or place to find you? Some of my past writings, I used to write, you can, you can Google my name, but you know, some of my writings are scattered about. I, I ran a blog, which I pretty much have stopped putting anything on, but it was called Invictus, I-N-V-I-C-P-U-S. It, it, it had, you know, I, I contributed a lot, a lot of the stuff on there, tons and tons of anti-torture articles. But also that's where I posted, for instance, and I, there's a link in my current article to that website, because that's where I posted a, a one of the uh, United States Air Force flyers uh, um, uh, deposition made to the Chinese about germ warfare, that of Frank Schwabel, Colonel Frank Schwabel. You know, so, so there's things posted there. Um, many, many years ago, I used to post the Daily Codes, and I suppose you can find it, but not under my name. In those days, I posted under the name Baltine, B-A-L-T-I-N. But primarily these days, medium, I would say. Or, or look, find my, um, or Shadow Proof was a place I, I wrote for a few years, still in existence. Um, you can look up my name at that website and find a number of articles back, going back now, you know, I don't know, five years ago or so. So, but that's, that's pretty much it. Okay. So our guest, Jeffrey Kay, does some great investigative work. Uh, the new piece on the use of German warfare during the Korean War, I would say, is absolutely smashing. And I think uh, if you're going to sit down and read it, You'll need to have a good, big, tall uh, cup of coffee, as I did. And just a funny note, the coffee that I was drinking as I was reading that uh, is called Biohazard uh, Coffee, which is the strongest purportedly uh, in the world. It has four times as much caffeine as, as any other bean. And so I was reading Biohazard, drinking Biohazard <laughs> Coffee while I was reading your piece on germ warfare. Uh, and so thank you for being with us on Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Ruvoy. Uh, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.